Hey, Meg, welcome to the show. Hello, happy to be here. Awesome. Hey, Meg, tell us a little bit about you. How, how did you yeah. end up in tech and your career journey? Yeah, I have been in a variety of industries throughout my career. Started in sales and CPG with Nestle in a sales leadership program for about three years. Very blue collar pizza, ice cream, frozen world. Can never eat ice cream ever again. There was so much ice cream for those three years. <laughs> and then went went a variety of different routes through over the last 15 years of both startups, being someone's 10th employee, very small org, and helping build that to also helping larger companies like Nestle and Starbucks go through an acquisition. And, and most recently, before where I'm at now, I was at Snap Mobile for about three years, helping them build an enterprise motion and going through some acquisitions where they were acquiring companies. And then also now at Rev.com as the VP of Revenue Operations, we are an AI and human transcription captioning company. I'm really focused in the media and legal sectors and just so excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Cheesy. Oh, hey, yeah, uh, sounds like you've had such a great career today. Done the yeah. big stuff, scale ups. And where did the passion for Rev Ops come from? I fell into it. <laughs> I I'm a seller at heart. And I think that's why I've been successful in revenue operations is because I lead with empathy for both the customer journey and the seller's journey and that team point. But I was working at a small company in Seattle and they, I was there for sales. I was a director of sales and they just lacked that process tenacity and repeatable, I guess, repeatable nature to be scalable long-term. And I've always had an eye for it. I was a seller who would follow the process, which is not normal. A lot of sellers refuse to sell, to yeah. follow the process and that's okay too. But I always followed the process. I had an eye for it and I just given the size of the company, it didn't make sense to bring in someone from an operational perspective. And so started doing a little bit of both and it worked. So my next, so both land and press, then Starbucks into Nestle coffee partners and then snap mobile. I managed both a sales org or part of a sales org and operations together. And it really works when you're in that growth, preparing for an event or preparing to bring in a, a new company, go through an acquisition. It, it, it does work to put those mm -hmm. together until it's too much. And then you scale back and you go into either sales or operations. And I went the operations side. The explosion of, of RevOps has been awesome to watch because it's a it's a critical component to scaling having an yes. actual rev operations unit it's something we fell into later in life and it made a huge difference in the previous company we were at but for a lot of our listeners who are like startup scale up stages this might be a newer concept can you go yeah. into a little bit like what's the core functions behind RevOps in, yes. in your view anyhow RevOps is very sexy right now it's not very often you get to be like yeah my, my job's pretty sexy but yeah RevOps is very sexy but RevOps is also ambidextrous. It can be whatever the organization needs and what it is varies. So the core function is process people and development. Those are going to be like really what you focus on organization to organization. How you prioritize those, what those look like. It depends if you're a product-led organization, sales-led organization, customer-led growth is very big right now. 
it's going to change org to org, but I would say process people development. Those are your top three that you see org to org. So as a startup founder, mm -hmm. where do I focus? What is their first stand-up team for RevOps look yeah. like? Yeah, it's not going to be big. <laughs> it's yeah. not going to be big and you're going to need someone who can pivot and reprioritize really quickly. And you need someone who can put their ego aside. So there are times where I go in and I am doing API integrations. I'm doing the build of a new system, things like that. And someone, it, it's hard to bring in a really senior mm -hmm. person who's sometimes willing to do that. You have to have someone who feels that that level of like ownership and accountability, but also wants that impact. And I would say you start with the process, which I think some people would say you start with the people. I think a good RevOps person in a startup motion is going to build some process with some guardrails because then when you bring in good people, they have the foundation to be successful. If you bring in people and don't have process, they might get lost. And then you have a bunch of people doing a bunch of different things and they don't know what success looks like. And I know for me, when I was a seller, if my manager, or my sales leaders couldn't tell me, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will hit your quota. You will hit plan. You will do these things. You'll be successful here at, at this company. I, I tended to just engage and I, I didn't always last as long because I, I just, it wasn't motivating. And really RevOps, we're here to, to motivate. We're here to make people successful. We're also here to protect the business. We're the business police, but we're really here to make sellers and that, that go-to-market motion successful. That's a pretty good point because if you bring the people in first and they're successful, it's really hard to then input process then be and like, say, be like, I'm so sorry. I need you to now change your whole life. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest, I've joined organizations that are like that. They are completely sales led. I, I once worked for a CEO who was the first salesperson and, and they were so sales led that when I came in and I said, we're going to build out this CRM and it's going to be your day to day. You're going to have to go in here. I, only, I had to internal champion back to them and then really show this is going to be your personal assistant. This is going to help you be accountable. What helped is, I hope this never happens again, but COVID happened. We went into a pandemic. We were all forced to not be in the field anymore. And so having process, having tools became more important because we weren't able to engage face-to-face -face with, with our coworkers mm -hmm. or our customers. How do you get that buy-in, Meg, so early on? Because I think you mentioned if you're a sales-led organization and you've got success, yeah. right? Yeah. In, the, in the early stage, you've got to $5 million right. ARR with three sellers, right. right? How do you then bring in someone who's so process-orientated? Literally, mm -hmm. it's like holding the Bengal Tigers by, the, by yeah. their tail. Like, how do you do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They call me the business cop for a reason. <laughs> um, I think, one, you lead with empathy. So I... Do not claim to know everything about I, being a seller or being a seller here at Rev. I lead with success in mind. So I make sure that me and my sales leaders and the sellers and my team and the marketing team, we have same North Star metrics. We know what success looks like from a customer perspective. And that drills down through our reporting, through our pipeline management, through our comp plans. 
And so we're all speaking the same language. I'm not asking them to do anything that that doesn't have a with them or like what's in it for me. I, I'm making sure that those sellers see the value there. But I'm also, I also don't BS people. Sometimes we're going to ask people to do things that they don't want to do. And that's just because we also, we have legal compliance. We have contracting. We have all these things that are cumbersome. And so keeping it simple, getting internal champions early helps a lot too. bringing people through the journey. Like if I want to go buy a new tool, I don't make that decision all by myself. I bring people in strategically through the buying process to, so when it goes live and if it asks them to do something that might be one more step, it's not me always saying why it's beneficial. It's that top seller or that seller that was struggling that sees the benefit in it, that can tell the story. Like having good storytellers internally is night and day when you're trying to implement something new. Hey, people listening in may find it hard to differentiate between sales ops and rev ops. Yeah. What yeah. is the big difference behind the two? Yeah, I think rev ops is just that natural progression of sales ops. I think sales ops is very specific to a sales org, but sales orgs or revenue is could be for companies like mine. We have a B two C motion that is very self serve. It's led by our, our wonderful. We have an amazing CMO here. It's led by him and his team. And and we have a go-to-market motion with Enterprise. And, and both have ARR, both have very similar metrics, but they have different motions and they have different ways that they go to market. And some in some instances have different products that they go to market with. And RevOps supports, I support three, so that was four, three, three main organizations. I support sales for obvious reasons. I support marketing because both of those equal our revenue stream. And then I support, I sit and support our finance org because I also am in charge of compliance. And so I think that's the, that elevated operational mindset mm -hmm. is it's taking it one level beyond sales tools, territory mapping, compensation plans, which is really your sales mm -hmm. operations motion. Going back to our time, when we stood up that RevOps team, the first question yeah. people like Sean asked me, what's the ROI? What is this team going to do? How many people? What is going to be my return? So how do you measure the effectiveness of this team? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. My CFO would tell you I'm really good at ripping out tools that don't work. So I think okay. identifying tech debt from like a sales tool perspective, it's really easy to see something shiny and be like, oh, let's buy mm. it. When you invest and then you don't build it, I can tell you right now, I'm sitting on something that we purchased a year ago that still isn't implemented. And I'm like, oh, I got to figure this out. So I think mm. that's immediate ROI, adoption of tools, adoption of process. Those are very measurable. I also think from the development standpoint, so as you develop skill, we use sales assembly a lot for skill-based training. As you train new things, you have to train things four times and typically four different ways in order for a sales rep to truly adopt it and recall it. Recalling is the biggest, mm -hmm. a month from now, are they going to remember what I told them to do? Yes or no. And it's usually because you've done four touch points in one week of learning. And so I think that's also a big piece is if you see your sales org retaining information and using it in their in their pitch practice and they, are they practicing? Are they 
are they talking about the product and the way that we've designed it with our marketing team? I think that those are also just good measurables that can come out really quickly from a strong RevOps leader. You mentioned sales assembly there. Shameless does, plug. Yeah. <laughs> does enablement sit under RevOps for you or is that how you always run it? Or how do you, again, like how, yeah. how does that crossover take place? Yeah. I've had it done different ways at different orgs. There's always been a piece of enablement within sales uh, or with, within revenue. And I think at a minimum, it's at least like the process enablement and the teaching around how you do what you do to get your job done. That is consistent. I've had organizations where the whole training team sits within RevOps here. I, we don't have a training team for sales. So I use sales assembly as like really my true enablement tool. But then we also like my CRO does weekly trainings with his team. And, and so we do training in, in a couple different ways. And then I've worked for the Nestle's of the world that have a whole training organization. So I, it really depends org to org, but at least the process enablement has been consistent within RevOps. I, I like the idea of it sitting inside a team like Revenue Operations because it means you yeah. can expand it past just sales where relevant. Yeah. Right? And that, that unification was what sold me when Ricky wanted to go build that team, having a single source of truth for data, for example, so that yeah. you can have discussions between marketing and sales and everyone has accepted that this is the data we're talking about. That yes. alone is super powerful. And, and that was the, the ROI that I took when you, when you pitched the team. It's like, oh, instead of yes. arguing over, and then this goes, my number is this, RevOps is, this is the number. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of the pressure off of the CMO mm -hmm. and the CRO. So I have a data person that sits within my org and she helps prepare board decks. She helps prepare our WBRs. And it's a, it is a centralized source of truth that I think does take away some of the natural tension between marketing and sales that can exist because neither of them are really the ones pulling that data. We're providing consistent data to them. And we're so talking about it the same way. You said that very yeah. tactually. I like it. <laughs> yes. Tension. Yeah, healthy yeah. Yes, healthy. And, but it's healthy. Yeah. Oh, well, I've worked some places, it's not healthy. And here it's very healthy. And tension's necessary in the workplace. If we all just agree with each other, then we didn't hire right. You, you lack diversity of thought. And, but that is something about being in RevOps is you are that like, you have to be grounded and people are going to come to you and they're going to be like, I have this huge deal and I need things done right now and I need a contract and I need this. And you have to level set, but also still keep the everything going. And yeah, you have to have a pretty calm temperament mm. in RevOps. It's a tough ask and a tough... Meg, how do you think about tech stack? What does a good tech stack look like? You talked about bringing in the champions <laughs> early, but yeah. as you walk into a fresh yeah. organization, do you review mm -hmm. what's there and you go, this is where we need to go? And do you have preferences? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, just like any leader coming in, we all come in with vendors mm. that we worked with before that we prefer working with. I would say for, and I once had a CR, our CEO talk about sales reps as Vitruvian men. And you talk about everything that's in their tool belt. I know we're thing, but he was great. But and you talk about everything that we ask a seller to do. And if you actually write that down and it'll vary department to department, the perception of what we ask sellers to do and know, 
But if you look at that and then you say, how many tools do you think it takes to do all these things? I do that exercise every organization I go into. And then I also do it every six months. And I sit there and I give myself the goal of I'm going to try and cut this by a third. So where can I consolidate? So where am I not fully utilizing a tool that exists? That's especially if it's well, we use HubSpot and Salesforce. That's a lot of API calls. I know. From marketing, I think I'm back. One's from primarily marketing, B2C, and then lead routing. So we use HubSpot for that. And then we use Salesforce as like our enterprise CRM. Both talk to Snowflake. There's just tons of, tons of different API calls there. So if I can limit the amount of data going to all these different places and utilize a tool more, I will as long as it doesn't have a negative effect on the ROI or time spent in non-revenue generating activities. I do tend to come in and rip stuff out it, it, without trying to hurt people's feelings. <laughs> Excuse me. So which can be hard because purchasing tech is very mm. emotional for mm. a lot of people. And then sometimes they had to like really sell it to their CRO and they there was a lot to get it going. But then fresh eyes coming in, really looking at what we want people to do, what are revenue generating activities versus not. You start ripping stuff out. And then I tend to, my internal champions, I always make sure our finance and accounting team is someone that I internal champion with because I like to earmark that money for something else down the road. So you sometimes you're not going to replace it right away. And sometimes you're going to replace it with something that didn't work. In all transparency, I learned, I just did that. I replaced a product with another product because it it was cheaper, but it looked like it did the same thing. And it was really plug and play and it felt more admin friendly. And then it doesn't work. It just doesn't work the same way. And I'll reassess and and adjust and I'll bring in something else. And that's some of that like nimbleness that you need in your tech stack that you need to be able to say this doesn't work. Um, we got to move on. And the more internal champions you have with engineering and finance to help get that done, the better. Yeah, that's a good tip. Uh, Meg, what are some of the biggest pitfalls and revolves? You've been doing this for a while, but if I'm standing yeah. up this team, what do I need to look out for? Yeah. If you lack alignment in your C-suite or in your board, it's really hard to build strategies. Like me as a VP of RevOps, I try to be about six months to two years out in planning, but that requires my CRO, my CFO, my CMO to have pretty clear plans of the direction they want to go by product and engineering saying, yes, we want to go build this. I think that's alignment just within your C-suite is great. And then it's in RevOps, it's really easy to go way too far in the weeds when you're trying to talk about something. So really dialing your message and making sure you're very intentional with how you're presenting a process or the benefit or data, because it's really easy to, my old coach used to tell me like, sometimes I will talk and I'll be like five steps ahead of where the person I'm presenting to is at, because I'm so operationally minded. Just making sure that you are really gearing what your like conversation to the audience is really important too. And it's easy to get sidetracked if you get too far. 
Hey, do you do quota settings as well and RevOps? And how do you think about that? Yeah. I know it differs from organization to organization, but are yeah. there some golden rules that you yeah. always go? Uh, make sure they're equitable, role to role. So if you have AE1s, AE2s, SAEs, they can't all be the same because they all have different comp structures. So you really got to look at, again, what are the goals we're trying to hit? What does success look like? You build comp plans based off of that. Yeah, that's definitely so when good. you you're setting quotas, they need to represent what success looks like for that role. It's really easy to get a board plan and be like, okay, I have five sellers, so I'm just going to divide it up. Not how it works. Like you, you have to look at their TAM. If you're doing, some places do location-based territories. Mm -hmm. Some places do enterprise, mid-market, SMB. You have to look at it and really take into account, if I'm building out this quota, is it too easy? Is it, does it make sense to the comp plan and is it achievable? And if it's not achievable, you're going to, you're just going to have turnover because sellers don't like to lose. Good sellers don't like to lose. It's a good point. If, yeah. if you've got people who are never hitting quota and they're happy to stay for their entire career, that's probably telling you something as well. Yeah. And that's something like we look at quota attainment quarter over quarter, year over year, and if you just have people continuously missing quota by, I'm, I'm talking less than 80%. Because yeah. I really build plans with the mindset that on average, a rep will hit it about 80 to 85%. Um, and if you see that the same sellers just aren't hitting, you likely have a comp plan that's too weighted on base and they're comfortable with their base. That's a good point. That's yeah. the mistake that too many startups make, right? Because yeah. to begin with... Well, because you want to be competitive, yeah, right? exactly. Like, or if you're not market ready. So that's where mm -hmm. I think, yeah, for comp, I do a lot of comp work here, but like comp, yeah. you have to you have to balance that, but you should also have good ramp plans. If you're going to bring in people early to a product or a market or a vertical that isn't ready, that's okay. You can pipeline build, you can do activity-based ramps. But have a ramp that has some accountability metrics to it, but then be ready to pivot and be like, we expect you to have a fast start because we gave you six months to prep and build and be ready to go to market because the product wasn't ready. You talked about ramp. What is a good ramp time? Because what if you have someone who is being promoted from within the organization, Meg, yeah. versus an external candidate? Do you look at the ramp type differently yeah. to each one of those candidates? Um, obviously, everyone wants the quickest ramp time possible. You want yeah. ramp just being the least amount of time you need to onboard to be quota ready. Mm. So I typically do three months as like a standard. And it, whether it be a new, I, I treat them separately. They have very similar ramp plans. But if it's someone new to the organization, there's a different learning curve. You're learning, you're learning process. You're learning different tech tools. You're learning about what you're selling. But if you're moving, let's just say, an SDR to an AE1 or into mm -hmm. a more of a full cycle or just new business sales role, you got to teach them how to be a seller. That's a skill-based Ramp. I will say if you're going to have that type of motion where you're promoting people, which I love building a bench and moving people up, you have to have really strong enablement tools and you have to be dedicated that their success is tied to the leaders that are leading them.
because no one can go teach someone how to be a good seller by listening to gong calls. That's part of it. That's part of the process. But you have to role play with them. You have to get on the phone and help them through a call. You get on the phone, you role play, and and in the middle of a call, you stop and you ask them, what is the customer thinking right now? And have them tell you like how that customer is reacting because an SDR is a, a little more ground discovery general. They typically have product, some properties and questions that they're trying to answer to qualify a, a customer. It's just a very different motion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, solid points. Hey, Mick, with all the work that you've done at RevOps, has there mm-hmm. been some unique and intriguing data points that you've come across? Yeah. Uh, we do a lot around marketing operations and nurture email, like email sequences, things like that. And really, I did this whole training around, <laughs> I hope you're doing well as, as a joke, because you never want to say that in a cold prospecting email, but really talking about the buyer's journey and how strapped a buyer is to have time to talk to sellers. Most 80% of a buyer's journey is done independently, whether that be searching online, it could be talking to their network, which can be really bad if you don't have a good reputation in, in the in the industry. And so by the time they get in front of a seller, they, they either have a very specific questions or they've probably already made up their mind on the direction that they want to go. So when you're cold prospecting and you're trying to get ahead of someone, you can't say, oh, I, I hope you're well. If I get that, I just delete it. And like, this wasn't meant for me. I'm fine. I thank you for wondering how I'm doing. I'm good. But it's not personalized. It's just a generic spray and pray email. Whereas if someone comes and they know they only have nine seconds of my time to get my attention, usually it's going to be something about the Dallas Cowboys or or Austin, it's going to be something very, or the college I went to, it's going to be something very specific to me. Nice. Hey, uh, this reminds me, going back to the comp plan, do you prefer to pay out different rates to inbound lead versus an outbound lead to the closes? Yeah. Oh, grading. I think it depends on the tools you have for outbound. If you don't have very good outbound legion tools and you're just expecting someone to search Google, that I don't know. Mm. I, yes and no. I think it just really depends on the makeup of the organization and also how many, there's organizations that have so many inbound leads that their outbound motion is very minimal because they an inbound lead is 20 times spicier than an outbound lead. But yes, I do at times pay people different rates or kickers or accelerators if it was like an external lead or if an SDR qualified the lead, maybe it is paid out a little bit less on like a a sliding scale because we're paying two people at that point. Yeah, it just depends organization to organization. I love as a tool, Quotapath, if anyone hasn't seen Quotapath as a compensation commission tool, Commission plans are only as effective as someone can regurgitate it, whether it be a recruiter or a seller or a sales leader. And having a really complicated comp plan, if someone says, I don't know where I stand and I don't really know how I'm paid, then you've failed. Mm. I mean, you need really clear tools and you need tools to where someone could be like really excited about a potential deal and they could go calculate how much they think they can make on it. 
It'll also help protect you from going too discount heavy. So if you, I do grading our different payouts based on profit margin. Because if you have a $20,000 contract, but you discounted it at the line item to the point where the profit's really low, there needs to be skin in the game on both sides for that. Nice. That's it. Interesting, because that way you can give more power to the salesperson Mm -hmm. to be able to do discounts, but understanding that the discount is actually hurting their back pocket if they do it, which is incentivizing them to actually sell full price. Yeah, or sell smart. If there's a big expansion motion there, but every organization has sellers that sell discount first or don't talk about list price at all. And But they may be really successful in certain motions and you want to enable them. You want them to have power. You want them to move quickly. If they have to stop every three seconds to ask someone for permission, it, then that's not scalable. You, you can't grow that. And, and it's just going to have to be rebuilt and pulled out at mm. some point. I don't want to necessarily make the entire episode about Compland, but it is an interesting topic. What are your yeah. views on clawbacks? Do you do clawbacks? Claw yeah. Yeah. It's written in our comp docs. I, I'm going to say as a practice, it makes sense. So you want to bring in customers that pay their bills, that, mm. that are good partners. Like You want to do those type of things. That's also really hard to vet. What are you supposed to say? Like, oh, do you pay your bills? I don't. What companies and be like, oh, no, sorry, I don't. Yeah, I, yeah. That's really hard for a seller to to vet. So I I think you come at it with, you set expectations of, the only clawbacks I've done is for non-payment. Uh, and if someone, but we set expectations of, if someone doesn't pay within 60 days of their term, this is the process. Finance will come to you and let you know. We will ask you for your help. We will give it this period of time. And then if it still isn't paid, it is eligible for clawback. We've had pretty good success rate with that. But I think it's just setting the expectations with the seller up front. We will claw back you if we're unsuccessful in getting someone to pay their bill, mm-hmm. but we're not going to just surprise you with it. It's not like when you go to Nordstrom and you bought something a week ago and you return it and you didn't return it with that seller. And then on their next paycheck, they they had a clawback. It's yeah, there's a lot of time in there mm-hmm. and a lot of cross-functional support to try and get um, those issues. You know, you, you've spoken a lot about lots of different functions getting involved mm-hmm. to, for you to be effective and to drive the change that you wanted to do. How, how do you go about building that connection with yeah. so many different departments and, and, and then maintaining that relationship, right? Because you are yeah. getting involved in lots of places and need support from different places. Like it's a, how do you maintain all that and build it? Yeah. When I come into any organization, I usually spend about the first 60 days in immersions and really understanding um, people's primary job responsibilities, their pain points, how they do what they do, and building that camaraderie uh, and, and building that relationship early. And I'm upfront with that with the leadership team when I'm being hired. And if that's not something that they support, it's probably not the organization for me. And so I, I invest that time. I ask a lot of questions, but they're questions. They're not assuming questions. They're not, oh, why do you guys do that? It's about support and how can I make, I am asked almost every person, if I can make your job easier, what would it be? And I take note of that. 
And I circle back to it and becomes a constant conversation. So I have a lot of one-on-ones, cross-functional one-on-ones. I also try to be as approachable as possible, be, which can have like positives and negatives because I, I end up becoming the person when deal desk isn't like what a seller does or when seller doesn't like what deal desk is doing, I become the intermediary. But I also become that like trust person where I, I sometimes I'm going to make a decision that people don't like, but at least it moves the process forward. And then we circle back to it and we find a better process moving forward. Or I'll question if, if this is our goal and this is the process, does this process support that goal? And if it doesn't, let's redo it. Let's just get rid of it. And I think, and I bring in all the champions that would be affected by it and make sure that they understand the why. But I, I think honestly, it's more just I invest that time up front to make sure that they know that I'm here to support them and make their lives easier, even though there's going to be bumps in the road. It's just like the tension between a CMO and a CRO. There's tension between deal desk and sellers and finance and sellers. And RevOps can be a really good buffer for that. Meg, what are your three favorite tools and why? For a okay. business that's under 10 million era. Yeah. I'm going to go. I love HubSpot. I've been a HubSpot fan for a long time. And we, and I've integrated both Salesforce and HubSpot. And which one you choose is about what the direction of your company and really how much you're willing to invest. What I like about HubSpot is it is a little bit more self-administered than Salesforce. Salesforce, you typically bring in a third party to help you build it. But... Salesforce has all the tools in the world. So there's benefits to both. I'm a big HubSpot fan, have been for many years, and I've used it as a sole CRM. I've used it just as a marketing CRM. So as a lot, it's, and it's constantly iterating too. They're bringing in new features all the time. Uh, my second one, I'm going to go back to Quotapath. Quotapath is great. Mm -hmm. Very plug and play, which is fantastic. Again, another one that's pretty easy to administer. It's not super expensive, but it's very high value. And I, I'm fortunate they're headquartered in Austin. I'm in Austin, so it's really easy to work with. Them. Ooh, my third one, third favorite tool, Tremendous. Ooh. Um, Tremendous is a, it's like an online, online kind of reward system. It is not something you have to sign a contract for. You can just set up an account, but it makes it really easy to, like if your organization really likes being given cash prizes or you want to do theme prizes with gift cards, things like that. Yep. We have a hybrid workforce. Some of my sellers are here. Mm -hmm. Some of them aren't. So it's really hard to give them something physical. I love Tremendous. It's super easy and it's really easy to provide expense reports to finance for it. So it's just super user friendly, very low cost. But we also use it for marketing for if we want to do an incentive to get people to do demos or to do a voice of the customer. It's something that you can use for everything that's really easy to manage. So I would say those are my top three. Um, awesome. That, that are, and they're pretty low cost. They're easy to just pick up and run with. <clears throat> hey, what's the future of RevOps, especially with AI yeah. coming into the field? Yes. I went to two AI conferences in a row about sales enablement or sales tools in the past two weeks. And there is fear around AI. Sure. There's fear that 
it'll lead to bad habits with sellers. Mm -hmm. I had someone say, what if it just replaces salespeople as a whole? I, that'd, be, that'd be really hard. And I, my thought is until AI can show empathy, which it can't, it, it's not going to learn that way. That's not how AI learns. We're always going to need sellers, but what AI will enable people to do is they're going to be able to research more quickly. I don't, I personally wouldn't want to use it as a full email template tool, but I think it gives good framework for emails. Sellers aren't good storytellers. That's two very different logics. So if there are tools that use AI to build framework for emails, so they have good grammar, they're spelled correctly, they do properly represent your product. I think that's great. I think I could totally see AI coming into like digital deal rooms, like that type of motion, but it's not going to replace everything. And we're always going to need good people, but I think good sellers, good selling organizations, good rev up organizations are going to see it as this is a tool to make us move faster. So we stop working on non-revenue -gen generating activities. And so if you use it in that way, it becomes a little less scary, a little less overwhelming. Yeah. I'm also fortunate I, I'm, we're an AI company. So yeah. I, I see it completely differently than someone who is selling a physical product mm -hmm. or, or something that's in a different realm. Yeah. That's reassuring for anyone listening out there, especially with uh, yeah. someone who is actually working at an AI firm, right? Yeah. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Meg, for all of that. Now we move to the hard stuff, the quick fire round. Um, <laughs> favorite sports team? I think I've figured it out, but let's hear yeah, it. Yeah, I love sports. So Dallas yeah. Cowboys for the NFL. I'm also a big like football, like soccer, football fan. Okay. So Manchester United, it's a very hot topic in here. Uh, we have a lot of Arsenal people. <laughs> we get real rowdy. <laughs> Not too many Man um, City? No, thank no. God. That'd be awful. <laughs> But Man United, I also, I love hockey and I grew up in Orange County, California. So Anaheim Ducks is like yeah. my home team. And then big Red Sox fan out of Boston. So those are my top four. Nice. Favorite music genre? Can Britney Spears just be a genre? I don't know. I don't like. <laughs> oh, I think that's, I, guess. I think that's I don't a, have to leave out Sean for that one. Yeah. 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 Sean, Sean's it. 100%. 100%. It's a genre. That's a genre. You well, just say Britney Spears. The other day Big I pop. heard, I think, in sync or something on an oldie station. And I was like, oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> too soon. Yeah. yeah, bring back some old JT. Yeah. Have a favorite movie. Do you have one? Um, my go-to movie, like if it's just like on TV, would be yeah. A Knight's Tale. But I also love the movie Twister, which is oh, kind yeah. of funny because I live yeah. in Texas where there could be tornadoes and I probably should find it scarier than it is. But no, I love those two movies. Interesting. Nice. What about favorite place to visit or the place that you haven't been to and it's on your bucket yeah. list? We love Tuscany. Oh, and yeah. we, my husband and I, we go truffle hunting out there and we love good wine. But I just got back from Paris and I really liked it. I'm actually taking my kids to Disney Paris next year. So I'm excited to go back. But I would just say you're, I love history and I love good architecture. So I feel like just like kind of Europe in general. And yeah. this is what the main question is, right? This is the whole thing. Okay. We actually kick this podcast thing off. Peanut butter. How do you like yours? Crunchy or smooth? These are right or wrong answer, by the way, just to, there's a disclaimer. Oh, okay. Yeah, 100% um, a wrong answer. Yeah. Crunchy? Ooh, oh, right answer. She, she's Good on answer. the right side. Okay. Good answer. Yeah. Did you yeah. actually like it or are you just guessing? Yeah, no, I do. I love crunchy peanut butter. I just, yeah. most of the time I say that. And in my family, I am the only person who likes it. So I have my own so, jar. Um, yeah. But yeah, crunchy peanut butter. But, 
That just means you're the only person who's right and everyone else in your family is wrong. <laughs> I tell my husband that all the time. Yeah. yeah. Like if you want peanut butter, you shouldn't have peanuts in it. If you want yeah. smooth peanut butter, have jam or something else. It doesn't make yeah, sense. Exactly. Thank you, Meg, for making the time and uh, sharing all your insights. This has been fun. Oh, yes, absolutely. Thank you guys so much.